So one of the pitfalls with this is that I want everything to be perfect. That's actually what one of the problems is with my writing, is that I spend so much time agonizing over what it is that I'm going to say on paper, how it is that I'm going to say it, that a friend even suggested, dude, just talk. Just hit record on your phone and just talk and let the words flow. Don't worry about it being perfect. Don't worry about it being organized. Well, kind of worry about being organized. Otherwise, you're not going to listen and follow. Okay, so point being, I want to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. But that's a bit much. And it's really easy to jump straight to that because we just finished talking about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And it's really easy to jump to those big sections and camp out there. But the issue is, is that there's actually transition stuff, or arguably not even transition stuff, but key important stuff in between. So in order to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, you obviously have to start with the Beatitudes. But really in order to understand the Beatitudes just in and of themselves, and why Jesus even starts there, we have to back up and look at what immediately precedes them, that time intervening between Jesus coming back from the wilderness after his temptations and actually beginning his sermon. So Jesus comes back out of the wilderness, and he begins his ministry. So in uh, Matthew chapter 4, uh the devil left him. Behold, angels came and minister, were ministering to him. Okay, so he heard about John in verse 12 of chapter 4 that, you know, was totes arrested and had been beheaded. And so he goes to Galilee, and Matthew mentions that that fulfilled a prophecy. I don't mean to be flipping and glossing over that, but point being, he goes to Galilee. And going to verse 17 of chapter 4, from that time... Jesus began preaching. So once he gets to Galilee and really begins his ministry, the first thing he does is he begins to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the exact same message that John the Baptist was bringing. And that is the thing that obviously we as Christians know, yes, repent from your sins, all that. But, oh, I don't know if we can really overestimate how key that is. So Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what is repentance? It seems like an obvious question. It's one of those things that's been redefined over and over and over again. But it's one of those things that when we define it, and it's so uh, common, it can be trite. So let's define it again, but go to an old voice. So Puritan Thomas Brooks defines repentance as an amendment of life. What that means is if there is a changing or a converting, well, okay, duh, but let's define converting. Convert comes from an older Latin verb, huerto, huertere, which means literally to turn, like an advertisement turns your attention towards itself. Okay, so repentance is a changing or a converting, a changing of one's focus, a changing of one's belief, a changing of one's actions. Well... There's a change, it's from what to what? It is to God from idols. It's First Thessalonians 1.9. Idols is another one of those words which is so easy to overuse. And that was cats. Idols is one of those words which is so easy to overuse. And actually overuse wrongly. So idols, to be clear are those cute little statues, or those kind of big imposing statues, that were made to either represent, embody, or actually be the manifestations of deities to which people prayed. Okay, 
So what were the purpose of idols? Well, that kind of begs the question, what were the purpose of the gods? So one would go to an idol, actually bow down and pray to an idol, which was the representation or the actual presence of a deity, in order to address the cares and concerns of life. I go to a temple, to an idol, to a god, in order to have my needs met and my concerns addressed for my sake. Because if you think about it, I'm just going to spitball Athena. Nobody really serves Athena, really. Nobody goes to Athena to do her service. Outside of a couple myths here and there where there are direct instructions, Athena doesn't even command anybody to holistically serve her. Let's go to our modern quote-unquote idols, like money. Nobody really serves money, though that's how our sermons usually tend to go. But rather, we make money, we make Athena serve us. They make us, or sorry, rather, we make them work for us. And it's a common phrase that you hear in modern financial literacy books and courses. Make money work for you. That's what we use idols for. We use them for our sake. So what is it that we use them for? Well, life in this world can be, well, in its various ways, frightening, insecure, horrific, and tragic. And so we go to our idols. We go to our gods. That's what the ancients used to do. Uh, to those persons nowadays or those things like money, which have power, so we think, to aid us in order to deal with, manage, escape, whatever, the brutal facts of life. And in this is found the nature of worship, actually. So, fun fact, worship, the word, in Latin, adorare, it's where we get the English word adore. We think about adore as being like just this really intense feeling of emotional love, or maybe even reverence. Uh-uh. Nope. Adorare, adore, it's a compound word, actually, of the root verb orare, which is to beg or to plead. It's where we get the English word orator or oration. And the preposition ad, which means to or towards. So ad, to adore, ad orare, to worship. It is a Latin word that's translated as worship, by the way. Is actually to direct one's pleadings or beggings toward someone. Better put in English, it is to make an appeal to. Well, what's the appeal? My life sucks. I face a problem. I am begging you to help me fix it. The problem here is that idols, gods, historically speaking, and now, since we're basically functionally atheistic, other things such as money or status or power or intelligence, we beg those to equip us to fix some problem, to give us a solution. Once we have that solution, or at least made our plea, we leave, and then we wash, rinse, and repeat the cycle. It doesn't really do us any good. We just stay in the, the hamster wheel of this rat race of life, and nothing really changes. But the Christian... The repentant one undergoes a change. Rather than beseeching or manipulating 
some deity, some idol, some object, some person for my sake, I shift and turn, I repent and begin to act for someone else's sake. For God's sake, I turn from my idol, from adoring my idol to serving the living God. And so if we go back to Matthew chapter 4 and we look at two different sections, two different groups of people, the first disciples and then the crowd, you see this distinction clearly made. So there is a lot to be said here, but in a kind of a quick and dirty fashion, the first disciples were called or pulled away from the real cares and concerns of this world in order to serve the Lord for his sake and that of others. So while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, now called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. It's logistics. It's their livelihood. They need to eat. They need money. So this is what they're doing. And Jesus said, follow me. And they just dropped everything and went. We'd call that crazy. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, he says. Okay, so a fisherman, which is what they were, fishes for his own sake. Again, to feed himself with the actual fish, to sell the fish, possibly to make a profit, to buy other things and actually establish himself and take care of the logistics and concerns of life. So a fisherman fishes for his own sake to the detriment of the fish. But a fisher of men, quote, fishes for the fish's sake, often at a great cost to himself. And so there's an irony here in that the real need for the provision of God is laid bare when one is called out of working for his own sake and into the service of God. But let's contrast that with the crowds that come later. And so it's picking up in Matthew 4, 23, and he went throughout all Galilee. Okay, and the order of the two things he did is really important. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction of the people. Now, the second two things, the healing diseases and afflictions, it's not that those are casually throwaway things. But again, the order is important. He went throughout all Galilee primarily preaching and teaching, sorry, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing their diseases and every affliction. And therefore, his fame spread. Why did his fame spread? His fame spread because of the healing. How can we tell? Because great crowds followed him. Sorry, I had to collect my thoughts for a second. So how do we know that his fame spread because of the healing? Well, it's because of the crowds that followed him. They were bringing to him all of their sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. Okay. So, the reason why this contrasts with the first disciples is that the people coming to Jesus right now are, functionally, idolaters. 
They're going to Jesus for the same reasons why they would have tried anything else. It's the same reason why the man at the pool of Bethesda was lying there. He was a Jew, but Bethesda, the pool, was considered to have healing powers associated with some kind of older pagan worship, definitely not biblical. And well, what other choices? Yeah, he's going to try anything. If this God doesn't work, I'm going to go to that God. And so Jesus, for them, proves more effective than the other deities, than the idols, at actually addressing the cares and concerns that they have. The people who were being healed, harsh as it may sound, were not repenting. Not really, or at least not yet. So for them, being overwhelmed by very serious concerns, Jesus, or even God, he's not actually a lord to be served. He's not even really an alternative to idols, the way that we see commanded in First Thessalonians. But he's actually more a particular idol who actually works and gives them what they want, what they think they need. The physical, spiritual, emotional healing, mostly physical. Okay, caveat. I have to say that the cares and concerns of these people, the diseases, the physical afflictions, these should never be trivialized. They are real and they are significant. At best, such conditions are vexing. But at worst, they are devastatingly debilitating. So as to render those who suffer them and those who love them desperately despondent, grasping for anything they can to actually fix these problems. And so... What the people following after Jesus right now are seeking are the conditions, the healings, which would actually allow them to live a good and full life, a happy life, a blessed life, which is what a beatitude is, something which makes life blessed coming from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed, which is related to Latin words like bonus, meaning good, and bene, meaning well. And so, essentially, what these people are looking for are those things which will allow them to live life well, those conditions or circumstances which will allow them to live life well, because right now their diseases, their paralyses, their seizures are actively preventing that and causing misery and suffering. But if only those were removed, then they could fully and freely act and be happy. So this blessed condition, the situation and circumstances, which like a flower in rich soil, or rather like rich soil for a flower, is precisely what uh, those following Jesus want and crave, it's actually exactly what he gets. But he does so in a way that kind of sucker punches what they're looking for and completely shifts and reorients their mind. The Beatitudes themselves are a call to repentance. Now, I mentioned the Latin word, the Greek word which is used, mekarios, uh, Dr. Constable, Dr. Thomas Constable from Plano Bible Chapel does some fantastic work in creating notes for every single book of the Bible. Highly suggest that you look at them. 
But the Greek word, makarios, he mentions it refers to, quote, a happy condition. And he also quotes a guy named Alan in noting that makarios describes a blessedness from an ideal point of view. So, this actually reminds me a lot of, well, money. Probably the most common idol nowadays. And I've been going through a lot of financial literacy books. And one of them, called Set for Life, by a man named Scott Trench, sticks out. And Trench has a quote early in the book that the result of attaining early financial freedom is a life lived on your own terms. So freedom, or the lack of slavery, shackles, chains, anything which prevents you from moving and acting as you wish and as you see fit. So let's look at this concept of financial freedom. Financial freedom is an objectively agreed-upon condition which makes for a blessed or a happy life. And to a certain extent, that's reasonable because let's look at what that condition affords. If one is financially free, has the financial resources, wiggle room, runway, as Scott Trench calls it, then one has buying power, selling power, giving power. One can move here or there. One can play at this or that, this vacation, that casino. One can enjoy. And what this all actually offers, what the people following Jesus right now up to that mountain crave, is stability, contentment, power, control, that condition within which one can live a fully good life. But where's God in any of that? Now, it's true. Financial freedom can be a blessing of God. The process in which one attains financial freedom can be the discipline of God. But if one seeks out that as the blessed condition within which one is going to live a full and happy life, a life lived on one's own terms, as Scott Trench says, where is God? And so here's where in the Beatitudes, Jesus, like I said, comes out swinging, addressing the very thing which those following him are craving, but he completely redefines Actually, he completely corrects or reestablishes what those conditions actually are. And so, begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Those conditions which make for a blessed and full, content and happy life. And that's what we're going to hit next time because I'm kind of done. <laughs>